Good evening. Certainly glad to be here tonight to be able to worship God with y'all. Thank Mitch for the prayer on my behalf. You know, this morning Mark talked a little bit, or actually his whole lesson was about mothers and the great influence that they can have on children. And they have that great influence, and when their children go out into the world, they have the influence that was placed on them. We saw examples of mothers that had a good influence on them and, and changed the world. We also saw mothers that had an influence on their children, and it was for evil. And that's kind of what I want to look at tonight, but in a broader sense, not specifically mothers, but how we navigate this life and the things that it says is acceptable and moral. I want to look a little bit tonight at the idea of living counterculturally. There we go. The idea of living counter to the culture, to the society that we live in, is nothing new for us as Christians. As a member in God's kingdom, we are reminded and commanded to live differently than the rest of the world. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Strong's defines the word peculiar here as being preserved, as being purchased, or a possession. We have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, and since we have been purchased in this way, we are His possession. We belong to Him. It should not come as a shock that we are different than the rest of the world because they do not belong to Him. They're not a possession of His. We are different because we have been called out of darkness, out of a sinful life, to a new and to a good life. And this life is good because we have a perfect and holy God that is in control of it. As I stated a moment ago, this idea of living counter to the culture is not a new idea. But I believe that it will help serve as a reminder to stay vigilant in our life and service to Christ. And to conform to the word of God more each day. If we're not conforming to the word of God each day, then what is it that we are conforming to? It can be an array of different things, but if we were to boil it down and sum it up in a word or two, it would be to the world or to ourselves. Just a few short years ago, most of us probably would have said that this culture says that there's no truth. That there's no right or wrong, no good or evil. You have your truth and I have mine. And it's all based on one's opinions and preferences. But you cannot gain traction and acceptance by having no truth at all. So now there has to be the existence of truth, but only as defined by one's opinions. But now I would submit to you that the culture that we live in would say that there is right and wrong, there is good and evil, but not according to Scripture. The words right and wrong and good and evil have been turned on their head, and they have been hijacked by a morally bankrupt people who recognize the need for these words because they have to be able to call what they are doing good and those that oppose them evil in order to justify what they are doing. Isaiah said it this way in Isaiah 5 and verse 20. He said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is exactly what we see happening in our culture today. I saw a quote from a popular preacher in our world, and this quote went like this. It said, Satan continues to make sin less offensive, heaven less appealing, hell less horrific, and the gospel less urgent. 
I believe it's important to talk about these things that we're going to look at for a moment tonight because not only has society said that these topics are morally acceptable, but it's crept into churches. And I use the word churches in a loose sense here as, as a place that defines a faith and belief in God. I think that it's important to be reminded of this. Just because we have been saved and made whole by the blood of Jesus does not mean that we cannot fall prey to temptation and succumb to sin. What we hold to be good and evil as defined by God's word does not change overnight. It's gradual. I certainly don't like change, and I don't know anybody that particularly does. But the same is true of what we hold to be morally true. This is only something that shifts away from what God's word says is true and morally accurate by not dedicating ourselves to growing in a knowledge and understanding of what Scripture says so that we know how we should live. And this shift can occur when we allow ourselves to be involved with the world to such a degree that we allow those cultural influences to desensitize us to sin. I came across another quote while putting this together, and I couldn't find who said it, but this is how it went. It said, first we overlook evil, then we permit evil, then we legalize evil, then we promote evil, then we celebrate evil, then we call those who still call it, then we persecute those who still call it sin. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, Paul speaking here says, he says, For we are not ignorant of his devices. I would remind you of the same. Do not be unfamiliar with the devices and the cunning craftiness in which Satan uses to plant seeds of doubt. Don't allow him to gain an advantage over you and outwit you because you have not hidden the word of God in your heart. Plant the word of God in your heart daily, whether by reading or listening to it so that we might not sin against him because of a lack of knowledge and being able to discern the difference between right and wrong. There was a Gallup poll done less than a year ago, and it was over Americans' view of the moral acceptability over several different issues. And there were a lot of different things in this, but they all pretty much pertain to marriage and to uh, sexual relationships and, and things of that nature. So I've just pulled a few out of there based on this for us to look at and consider for a moment tonight. And I want to look at it and compare it to what we see in God's Word. Each of these topics can be difficult to, to discuss, especially with young children present, but just because of the nature of the topics. But I believe they're important to talk about because of the large acceptability of these issues in our culture. I think it's important to talk about, for those of us that are older, to be reminded and assured of what God's Word calls sin and what the world calls good and celebrates. I believe it's important to talk about because children from a young age are forced to deal with these issues and confronted with them. And, in, and depending on the environment they're in, um, they may be forced to deal with them in a really in-your-face manner or in a very subtle way. But either way, they can still cause us to become desensitized to sin. And this is the heart of the lesson, to remind us to not cower to the ideologies that the world calls good, but that God condemns and says is sin. I believe there are two characteristics that we can see when the culture tries to mark something that is sinful as something that is good. We can often see the, uh, the presence of arrogance and aggression. Arrogance is defined as to exaggerate its worth and importance in an overbearing way, and it has an offensive attitude of superiority. 
The definition of aggression is hostile or violent behavior or attitude towards another with a readiness to attack. This, whenever evil tries to masquerade as good, it often has to bark louder to get traction. These two characteristics certainly seem like the character of the ideas and agendas that we see being pushed in our culture today. These characteristics are quite the opposite of what we should model as Christians. We are called to be humble and meek as we see in Colossians 3 and 12. And we are to teach the truth and love as we see in Ephesians 4 and verse 15. If we are humble and teach the truth contained in the Bible, we won't be arrogant. Not because we're perfect, but because we've submitted to a higher being, that being God Almighty. If we're meek and loving in the way that we present the truth from God's Word, then we won't be aggressive. If we think we are being warriors for the kingdom and we talk to the world and about the world with arrogance and aggression because they do not see like we do, then shame on us. These should not be characteristics that Christians are known by, and if they are, we need to change. We've been given instruction on how to properly plant seeds in the hearts of men, and it's not by coming to the world like a pit bull on the end of its chain. It's with humility, love, and meekness that we talk to the world about the sin that it's in and then allow God to give the increase. The idea of this lesson is not to address the forgiveness of sins that you can receive from these things that we're going to talk about, because you certainly can. You can receive forgiveness of sins whenever you submit to God. But rather, the objective is to look at the acceptance of these practices by a large majority of our culture and compare it to what God says. And not only is this an acceptance, but they call it a moral acceptable choice. Like I said, it doesn't mean that you can't be forgiven, it's just... I want to look at it subjectively, what this poll says compared to the Bible. So here's the poll, and it said 81% of Americans believe that divorce for any reason is acceptable, morally acceptable. 76% say that sexual relations between a man and a woman before marriage is morally acceptable. 46% say this same type of relationship between teenagers is acceptable. 41% say pornography is acceptable. 71% say that homosexual and lesbian relationships are a morally acceptable choice. And 52% say that abortion is a morally acceptable choice. As Americans, we have the tendency, if we're not careful, to look at each of these issues as a political issue on one side of the aisle or the other. But this poll has some pretty interesting results when it's broken down between the two major parties in our culture. You can see the dark uh, bar represents one party and the, and the lighter colored bar represents the other. But to me, when I look at this, I see at least 25% acceptance of a morally acceptable choice in each of these categories from each party. And to me, this shows a nation that is morally compromised. And what this country needs is not a political fix, but a gospel message that's on display for them to see in the way that we live our lives. We need to be a light, not in a self-righteous way, but in a way that brings honor and glory to God and leads souls to Him. What our culture needs is Christians that will fulfill their role in their new life in Him, as we can see in Romans 6, and say no to sin and not compromise for it, but truly live a Christ-centered life. So when our culture tells us that divorce for any reason is morally acceptable or without reason, do we... By, do, we, do we go with this or do we turn to God's word for an answer? 
1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11 says, Now the, to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. In verse 10, Paul says that he's about to give us a command. Not one from him, because he didn't have that authority, but from, from God. And this command was not to depart from, the spouse, from, a, from your spouse, to not put them away. God's perfect design for marriage from the beginning was a man and a woman for life. Malachi 2, 14-16 says, Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and wife by covenant. But did he not make them one having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? Because he seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. Malachi is talking to the Israelite men here, and he tells, him, tells them that they're being unfaithful to their wives and divorcing them so that they can marry pagan women. These men were marrying women who worship false gods. They were breaking their covenant to their wives. And Malachi sums it up in verse 16 by saying that God hates divorce. Matthew 19, verse 8 and 9 says, He said to them, Jesus speaking here, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. In this verse, I want to point out two things that we can see. One, we see a reason, a permittable reason for divorce, and that's if in the case of sexual immorality or infidelity within a marriage. And my goal is not to get into all the nuances of why some might want to get divorced or why some do, but rather the, to point out the fact that we do see a reason. Sorry, but rather we do see a reason for it given by Jesus. But the point that I would really like to take away from this passage is that Jesus says from the beginning it was not so. God's perfect design for marriage was to have a man and a woman get married and stay married. And it's no wonder that we see so many divorces in America when we look at this poll and see the acceptability of it at a large degree by most Americans that believe that it's not a big deal. My admonition would be to put in everything you have into your marriage. Marriage is no different than anything else that is good in this life. It takes work. Some might argue, and I definitely would not disagree, that it is harder than anything else that you might do or work at to make good. But it's worth it to work at it and make it good and make it one that honors God. When husbands and wives work at their marriage with all that they have, to have a marriage that honors God, it will be good. Because God's desire for a marriage is to be a blessing. It's a representation of Christ and His church. And it will be good when we're more fo focused on Him than we are ourselves. Hebrews 13 and verse 4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Marriage should be honored as we see here. It should be worked on and fought for. The word honorable means valuable, costly, esteemed, beloved, dear, honorable, and most precious. God places a great value on marriage. 
The words that we just read are a description of his thoughts about it. And I would urge you to remember as you think about your marriage, I would urge you to remember this as you think about your marriage and as you continually work on it. Next, I'd like to look at a few of those different poll topics, and we'll lump them all into one because they really all had to deal with the same thing, and that's sexual immorality. Just to briefly jog your memory, 76% of Americans say that a sexual relationship between a man and a woman before marriage is morally acceptable. 46% say that that same type of relationship with a teenager is morally acceptable. 41% of Americans say that pornography is acceptable, and 71% say that a homosexual and lesbian relationship are a morally acceptable choice. My prayer for this lesson, and for all of us, but especially those of us that have growing age kids, and, and for all the parents raising them, is that we do not allow ourselves to be so influenced by the culture that we live in to ever allow these topics that we just read to become something that we view as morally acceptable. God certainly does not view these topics as moral, but as immoral and not an acceptable way to live before Him. Certainly a person with a repentant heart and a new pattern of life, someone that's submitted their life to Him, can be forgiven. But that's not what's being disputed here, but rather what we are discussing is whether or not these things are morally acceptable. Our culture's motto is often, if it feels good, do it. What a terrible saying for us or our children to ever buy into. This is certainly not a motto we will see bore out at any point throughout Scripture. In fact, we see the opposite. We are told to exercise self-control in regards to this, but also in other areas of our life. As a Christian, our goal and our purpose is not to gratify the flesh and the desires of it, but rather to rein our members in to subjection to glorify God. God created sex, and we are told that it's good. But he also gave us parameters and confines to where this type of relationship is good and acceptable, and that's within a marriage. The word marriage denotes a covenant relationship with two parties or two descriptive words involved. And those two words that are involved and fall under the confounds of marriage are husband and wife. Not a boyfriend and girlfriend, not the fiancé that you're going to marry next week, not a live-in partner, but a husband, a man, and a wife, a woman. But our culture tells us that these type of relationships between a man and a woman before marriage is morally acceptable. And they say the same is true of teenagers. That the use of pornography and same-sex relationships are likewise morally acceptable. These are not morally acceptable choices for those that wear the name of Christ. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1 and 2 says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. The scripture is pretty clear that sex at any age between a boy and a girl is not acceptable outside of marriage. And verse 2 clarifies this. It says, because of sexual immorality, because this exists, this temptation exists, avoid it by getting married. Now, there's obviously more that goes in to this than simply getting married. Like the age of the person that we're considering, or the person that wants to get married is the person that they want to marry, someone that's going to help them as they strive to live a life in service to God. But the point remains that God has given us a way to live morally before Him, and that's through marriage. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, 
idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When we follow the lust of the flesh, it's easy to see in our life, especially if we are striving to live a life that honors God and we're truly examining ourselves. But for those that are looking at our life, it's easy for them to see. We can see plainly here that those that practice fornication or any of these other sins for that matter will not enter heaven. The word practice here literally means perform repeatedly or habitually, thus differing from a single act. But this is by no means an excuse for, to continue to sin. As I would remind you in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how should we that are dead to sin continue to live any longer therein? But I do point out this word practice to remind you that if you remove yourself from that, if you repent and turn to God, submit your life to Him, there is forgiveness. Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. This is a pretty simple and clear passage. It says that a same-sex relationship is an abomination to God, which literally means something that is disgusting to Him. Romans 1, verse 24 through 27. It says, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to the impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with the woman and were consumed with passion one for another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This all happened because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They bought into what their culture touted as being good and enjoyable and moral. This is happening in our culture. Don't exchange the truth of God for the lie that our culture is trying to sell us. Our culture says that pornography is morally acceptable. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28 says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is teaching here and he references the old law when he says, You've been told that you're not to commit adultery. But the time was coming and is now here that the actual committing of the act can now be placed to the thought of a heart. We don't even have to watch a show or get on the internet, but we can simply do this with the thoughts of our heart. So if our thoughts can commit this act, certainly viewing pornography is condemned as well. The last thing that I would like to look at for just a moment is that 52% of our culture says that abortion is morally acceptable. How does God view children? Mark's talked about this verse for a moment this morning, but I'd like to look at it again. Psalms 127 and verse 3, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb is a reward. It says, Behold, children are a reward. It doesn't say, Behold, children that have been born are a reward. The point is, is that all children inside the womb and those that are beside you tonight 
are a heritage. They're an heirloom. They're a priceless gift from God. In fact, this verse says that the fruit of the wound is a reward. By implication, what's in your belly is a gift. Our culture tries to tell us that life begins at birth, but even then they'll perform afterbirth abortions up to so many hours later. But God says that this baby in your womb is alive and that it's a heritage, it's a gift from Him. Don't let this culture convince you otherwise. Proverbs 6 and verse 16 and 17 says, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are abomination to Him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A vast majority of our culture would tell you that this is not the shedding of guiltless or innocent blood because it's not even a life. But as we read in Psalms 127, we can see that God talked about it, or that it was talked about in a way there that it's a reward at conception. It's a reward in the wound. Luke 6 43 and 44 says, For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. So what's being said here? He says that a tree is known by the fruit that it produces. He says you don't get grapes from a bramble bush or figs from a thorn tree. The same is true of the womb of a woman. We can know what the womb we can know what is in the womb by the fruit that it has produced since the beginning of time when Adam and Eve had Cain. The womb has and will always produce a baby that God has made, known, and loves, not a glob of tissue. Do not let this culture deceive you. Does the fruit of our life show that we condone or disapprove of these topics? And I'm not talking about what we say is sinful or what we say is good, certainly those things matter, but do the things that we allow ourselves to be involved in reflect the goodness of God, or does it reflect what this sinful culture calls good and evil? The shows that we watch, the music we listen to, the places we go, the things that we give approval to, either with our words or with our silence. Romans 1, 29-32 says, Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but, those, but also approve of those that practice them. Well, you, you know, I don't do those things, I might say, or you might say. But do we gain pleasure? Do we find enjoyment in the entertainment or other things that glorify these immoral lifestyles? In a culture that has watered down the truth of God to conform to their ideologies and agendas, we have to be on guard and alert. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 8 says, For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? Now I realize that Paul was talking about speaking in tongues in this passage, but he uses verse 8 as an analogy to get his point across. And his analogy here, I believe, is a good one for us in the things that we've discussed tonight. Many nations, before they were about to go to battle, would use the trumpet as a way to gather all fighting age men together to prepare for battle. 
But here in verse 8, it says, If the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, or if it's not distinct, then how will anyone know whether or not they are to be preparing for battle? What our culture celebrates and praises as good and morally acceptable, when in fact it's evil, destructive, immoral, it should be a reason for sounding the trumpet, for the cultural battle that is at war with God's holy word and is, it, is in a fight for the hearts and minds of us and our children. We need to put on the full armor of God as we can see in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. And for time's sake, we won't read that tonight, but I would encourage you to read that and remember that each day we must make the choice to equip ourselves so that we can be prepared to live a faithful life to God in a world that still is repeatedly trying to remove Him from it. We need to be salt and light in this world. We need to live a Christ-centered life so that our manner of life can be seen by those without Him and they might have a desire and occasion to come to Him because they see Him living through us. We need to do this with a genuine desire to honor God and to bring lost souls to Him. The love that we have for the lost should compel us to bring the truth to them in love and not in a mean-spirited or angry way. The best way to combat the wiles of the devil and the things that this culture throws at us is to continually grow. If our desire above all things is to serve God, then it should compel us to grow in knowledge, wisdom, and discernment of His Word. And that, and that cannot be accomplished without study and growth. Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 14 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. For he is a babe. For solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Whenever you, whenever you are continually studying and maturing, then by this constant practice you will be able to distinguish good from evil. I'd encourage you to remember Jackson's lesson from Wednesday night and practice meditating on God's Word throughout your day. Certainly, this is a good and an intentional way to be, to be, <laughs> to be focused on God throughout our day. Colossians 2, verse 8 says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. If you continue reading there in that passage, we see that we have Jesus, and because of this we're complete and not in want of anything. And since we know this, we need to be on alert for those that would try to deceive us through the philosophies and lies of this world. Remain grounded and firm in Jesus. As we close, I would like to offer hope and encouragement for you if you've fallen and sinned in any of these areas. Certainly the Bible is a story of hope. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 11 shows us the great God that we serve, and we do. 
He's a God full of grace and forgiveness when we repent and turn away from a sinful past and submit our lives to Him in accordance to His Word. It says, and such were some of you. This means that people can change from making sinful decisions to decisions that honor and glorify Him. My prayer is that this lesson has reminded you and strengthened your resolve to not give in to the ideas of the culture, but to remember the God that you serve and choose to submit to Him each day. If you need the prayers of the church, or if you've been taught and have a desire to be baptized, we'd ask that you'd come forward at this time as we stand and sing the song of invitation. <laughs>